We're going to concentrate primarily in verses 6 through 10. And there's a phrase that in verse 6 that talks about personal favoritism. And we'll talk about that. But it's been a couple of weeks since I've shared with you out of the book of Galatians. So I want to do is start in verse 1 and just read the first 10 verses so that we're all in sync together. And then we'll talk about this idea of favoritism and so forth. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, if you'll read along with me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel I preached amongst the Gentiles, but privately to those who have reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Verse 5, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel of the circumcised was committed to Peter, for he who works effectively in Peter for the apostleship for the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And then James, Caiaphas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they be circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Father, I ask that you would bless and anoint your word. Give us ears to hear what you're saying to us this morning, Father. Father, would you work in our hearts and our lives in such a way that we would grow closer to you, we would become more like you. Father, I invite you to remove anything that's not of you from our lives and make us more and more like you. In Christ's name, amen. So according to this portion of Scripture that we just read, there are three men that were considered pillars of the New Testament church. Pillar meaning somebody who the foundation is built upon, and he lists them for us. They're called Peter, and this is, of course, Peter, the, the guy that walked on water with Jesus, the one who said, I will never deny you, but then did deny him. So Peter was prominent in the gospel accounts. He was prominent in the first half of the book of Acts. He was there at the day of Pentecost and used mightily of the Lord, essentially the first half of the book of Acts. But it was Peter that Jesus said he would give the keys. So he was the one that was op uh, involved in opening up this gospel message, the door of faith both to Jews and then ultimately also to Samaritans and Gentiles. So Chapter 2 of Acts, we see the day of Pentecost, the door of faith being opened up to the Jews. Peter was used significantly to the Samaritans, which were the half-breeds that people they didn't like, and then also to the Gentiles. P 
people that Jewish individuals would normally have nothing to do with, God worked in Peter's life in such a way that the door of faith would be open to them. We also see a gentleman by the name of John. John, This is the John, not John the Baptist. This is John as he describes himself in the gospel. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. See, John got to write the gospel of John, and so he added these sorts of things. I'm the one that Jesus loves the most. Now, Jesus loves all of us, but that's the way that John described himself. So he was used, he was re recorded there, he was in the sort of the inner circle of those 12 apostles. John was one of those three inner ones, and so we're familiar with him. James is a character that is maybe a little bit less familiar to us. You see, there are two Jameses that we find throughout the scriptures, especially the New Testament. One is one of those 12 apostles, the apostle James. That's not who he's talking about here. He's talking about a different James. He happens to be talking about James, who happens to be the half-brother or the brother of Jesus. This is the same James that wrote to us, for us the book of James. And in the book of James, he introduces himself not as, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus, you have to pay attention to me. But he introduces himself as a humble servant of God. Over in Matthew chapter 13, we find this. This is uh, sort of a critique. Let me back it up a little bit in a verse before. That when he had come, that is Jesus, come to his own country, he taught them in the synagogue. So they were astonished and said to him, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? You see, Jesus didn't have anything unique and special about himself that made him stand out. You know, he didn't have a halo behind his head when he walked into a crowd. He didn't glow when he walked in. He was a man that looked like everybody else. But they were astonished at the authority and the way that he taught and the miracles that God was doing through his hand. And they said, is this not the carpenter's son? We know who Jesus is. He's just that guy down the road, and he works for his dad. Who in the world is this guy? Then he went on to say, is not his mother called Mary? In other words, they said, hey, I know this guy. And then they went on, notice this, and his brothers, James, Joas, Simon, and Judas. This is not Judas Iscariot. His physical, biological brothers or more appropriately, I would say his half-brothers. You see, Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Mary gave birth to him, but Joseph and Mary never had any sexual relations prior to the birth of Christ. Now, they were married. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph honored and respected her until after the birth of Jesus. Now, if you've grown up in the Catholic circles or you have influence from them, the Catholic Church teaches that Mary was forever or perpetually a virgin. The scriptures are quite clear. Joseph and Mary had a normal husband-wife relationship after the birth of Jesus. And here we have listed for us brothers, James, Jonas, Simon, and Judas. And, and they don't mention, but his sisters. And are they not with us? And the question is, where did this man, this man Jesus, get all of this talent? In other words, Jesus didn't come from the priestly family, the kingly family. He came from a lowly family. 
Now, you know the birth story of Jesus. He was born in a small town called Bethlehem. Even to this day, nothing significant is in happening in Bethlehem. If you ever take a trip to Israel, you might go through Bethlehem and you'd be like, that's it? And that's exactly it. That's where Jesus was born. Of course, that was in perfect fulfillment of scriptures. Jesus was then taken by Joseph to Egypt until Herod, the first Herod, had died, and then he was no longer killing all the babies in Bethlehem. And he returned back to his dad's hometown, which was in Nazareth. So Jesus is known as a Nazarene. So all that to say that when Paul here, who's the author of this book of Galatians, is writing, he's saying, look, I went and I talked to Peter. I talked to John, and I talked to James. James, again, was the half-brother of Jesus. He was not a biological brother, but he was the, the offspring of Mary and Joseph. This James was instrumental in the establishment of the early church in Jerusalem. But it wasn't because he was a half-brother. It wasn't because of his family heritage. In other words, he didn't obtain this position because of who he was or what he was. Matter of fact, in Jesus' lifetime, his brothers rejected him. At one point, they wanted to arrest him and put him basically in a mental hospital because they thought Jesus was crazy. He's the crazy brother. He's the one that goes around and says that he's God. Who in the world is this? And then later on, after the death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they, one by one, came to faith in Jesus. James specifically came to faith as Jesus personally appeared to him. Wouldn't that trip you out? A guy that you grew up with, a brother or a sister that you grew up, maybe a stepbrother you grew up with, and then you hear that he's dead, and then he shows up, not just in a dream, but he shows up physically. And then you think back to all the things that Jesus did in his lifetime. Not just his public ministry, which would be enough to awe any of us. But can you imagine being the sister or the brother of Jesus? And having your parents say something to you like, why can't you be more like Jesus? Why can't you have the attitude of Jesus? Why can't you just be more obedient? So this is the James that he's talking about. And he's saying to them, when I went to Jerusalem, which is 14 years after his initial conversion experience. He's been sharing the gospel, and he went to them not to make sure that he had the right gospel message, but in its essence to confirm what God had been doing. You see, in the region of Galatia, which is where the book of Galatians is written to, there were people going around saying, no, you have to be a Jew first before you can be a Christian. And there are others who are saying, well, okay, you became a Christian. You're not Jewish by heritage, but you have to adopt all these Jewish traditions and customs. And the main thing that they drew a distinction between was circumcision. If you were a good Jewish boy that were raised by Jewish parents on the eighth day after you were born, you were circumcised. And it was something that clearly marked you out from anything else. And some of the Jews were saying, in order for you to be really a super spiritual person, you also have to then be circumcised, even as an adult. And so that's where we get this conflict between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. In some of our church circles today, people will say, well, you have to go to my church, or you have to be baptized in my church, or you can only be baptized 
this way or that way. Or it's got to be, you know, sometimes as Christians, we love to argue over which translation of the Bible to use. And if you read out of a different translation than I read out of, well, you're not really born again. Or you've got to do it this way. You've got to wear green on Sundays. If you don't wear green on Sundays, you're just not connecting. And see, Merv, not uh, kind of green. Rick, yes, you're okay. But others of you, you're just way out of, okay? No, that's not it. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about the religion. And so that's what Paul, excuse me, was up against. And so he did confer with the pillars or the religious leaders of his day. Because there had been false teachers that had crept in and were adding heavy burdens to people that God never intended. Somebody might say, well, in order to be a good Christian, you have to fast at least once a, once a week. There's nothing wrong biblically with fasting, but if we fast with just sort of a religious perspective, Again, if you're from a Catholic background, you understand that we just finished a season of Lent. And there's nothing wrong with setting aside a time and saying, look, I want to seek the Lord more. But for those of, those of you who are Catholic or have a Catholic background, like myself, Lent was nothing more than just a religious duty that if I gave up Coca-Cola or chocolate or red meat or whatever else, then therefore God would have to love me more. And that's not what it's about. It's about your life and your heart being surrendered to Christ. Fasting can be a wonderful spiritual exercise if we do it correctly. If we think of it because I didn't have chocolate yesterday, therefore God loves me more, we're taking it totally the wrong way. If instead we're saying, I want to give up my lunchtime tomorrow because I want to seek the Lord tomorrow. I'm going to take my half hour, my hour for lunch, and I'm going to read God's word, and I'm going to pray instead of having lunch. That's the right way to do it. If you're saying, okay, I'm going to fast from the internet. I'm not going to be on the internet for the next three days so that I can spend time seeking the Lord. That's the right mechanism or the right attitude towards fasting. Just because you're not on the internet doesn't magically make you more spiritual. <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of their evilness. They didn't have the internet. How could they get so evil without the internet? Because it's the heart of man. Adam and Eve sinned before there was ever any modern technology. They sinned. And so modern technology just makes it easier for us to sin. But putting away modern technology doesn't make you more spiritual than somebody else. So there was a group of false brethren who had infiltrated the meetings, in other words, the church meetings, and they were quietly going around telling people, well, in order for you to really be a Christian, you've got to do this. Here in the DFW Metroplex, there are those who might say to you, you only need to really pay attention to the writings of Paul. Don't really pay attention to the Gospels. Don't pay attention to the Old Testament. Only pay attention to the, the writings of Paul, which is false doctrine. It's false, and they've crept into the church saying things that the Bible never says. Many of you are aware of others in the Texas area that proclaim what we might call a prosperity or a health and wealth gospel. 
In other words, if you just come to Jesus, all of your problems are gone. God never said that. Jesus, matter of fact, said, if you follow me, you will have difficulties, which is just the opposite of what some churches teach. Again, that is false teachings. In some circles, people are told that the reason you're sick is you don't have enough faith, or the reason you have financial difficulties is because you haven't given enough to the church. By the way, we already took up the offering, and I'm not taking out a second one, okay? So you can relax. But some churches will say something like that, which adds an extra burden. It puts the responsibility on man. Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. He is the one that will rescue us. So Paul did go to Jerusalem to confer with those leading apostles, Peter, James, and John. And what did he do? He confirmed what God had already shown him. What God had already told Paul through revelation, he sort of compared notes with those who hung out with Jesus in his lifetime, and they said, amen. You're right on track. So Paul met with them privately, not because it was a secret thing, but because he didn't want to deal with all of those that were causing the confusion. He wanted just to meet with the leaders and confirm that what he's been sharing was correct. So Paul's point is this. God is the one that spoke to me. God is the one that I met on the road to Damascus. It's about a relationship with God. It's not about religion or who you happen to know. Do you understand that? That God loves you and he doesn't care what your background is. That's what it means to not to show partiality or favoritism. It doesn't matter to God if you grew up in Mexico or if you grew up in China or you grew up in America. He says, do you know me as your Lord and Savior? It doesn't matter if you went to an Ivy League school or you never graduated high school. It doesn't matter to God. He wants you to know him. It doesn't matter whether you've grew, grew up in a Pentecostal or a Lutheran church. He wants to know you. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in a Protestant church or a Catholic church. You grew up under Jehovah Witnesses. He wants to know you as his, you, as your personal Lord and Savior. So he met with them. And it wasn't because he's afraid he had the wrong message. He knew his message was right, but he wanted to confirm with them or establish with them, sort of reporting to them all that God had done. So he did it quietly, not because he was doing something in secret, but to avoid the open arguments that might happen. Okay? And so, picking it up here again in verse 3, but from those who seemed to be something, those who were, again, their leaders, this is, again, James, Peter, John, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. In other words, Paul is saying, I don't really care who they are. Now, this is not a disrespectful thing. What Paul is saying is, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, no matter what. And is that where you're at this morning? Are you committed to follow Jesus Christ no matter what? It's wonderful when there's a large group of people going with you to follow Jesus. But if you're the only one, are you willing to follow Jesus? To go where he calls you, to go where he leads you. And that's what he's talking about. So of that day... 
John, Peter, and James would be quote-unquote famous Christians. Today we have famous Christians all over the place. They might be musicians, they might be famous pastors, and so forth. But let me ask you this. What's the most important thing to you? Is it to follow Jesus, or are you following a movement, a church, a person, a musician, an athlete? If you're following some person, then you're following the wrong thing. Now, it's wonderful when God uses men and women in your life to encourage you. We're not talking against that. But we are saying is we have to be followers of Jesus. So they were somewhat the famous Christians of Paul's day, but he wasn't overly impressed with them, nor was he intimidated by them. Whatever they were, he says, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism to men. In other words, God doesn't look at you and say, okay, well, I like you better because you wear glasses and therefore you're more spiritual than somebody else. Or I don't like you because, well, you grew up on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. God loves you as you are and he wants to transform you. But the issue of personal favoritism or showing favoritism has always been a problem throughout human history where people have decided that we're going to show favoritism to this group or that group. And it hasn't changed because of the heart of mankind. You see, the gospel message is unique in that it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, what your language is, where you grew up, how much money you make or you don't make. God loves you. God loves the filthy rich person as much as he loves the dirt poor person. And that's unique. In all the world's religions, you don't have this broad call to anybody who will come to Christ. Back in Leviticus chapter 19, it tells us this. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Here's the idea, and we have this problem. And again, I think our judicial system in America has problems, but it probably is one of the best in the world. But we have the problem. If you have more money, you get to hire a fancier, more powerful, more well-connected lawyer. And if you have no money, you get the public defendant who probably doesn't, who just barely got out of law school. Is that fair? No, it's not. In other parts of the world, it's much worse than it is here. But we're not to show personal favoritism. In other words, we're not to say, well, okay, because you're my buddy, I believe whatever you say in spite of the evidence. That's not how it's supposed to happen. Did you know that Jesus had also a people who uh, ridiculed him because of his background? Over in John chapter 1, verse 46, it says this, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They're talking about Jesus, the one that we love, and they're saying, well, he's from the wrong church, he's from the wrong town, he's not the right connections, and so forth. And that was what people thought of people who came out of the city of Nazareth. I don't know where you were born. I was born in California. Can any good thing come out of California? I don't know about that. Um, (laughs) Here's the idea. It's not about where you're born. It's about do you know Jesus Christ? And then one other place, if you would, open your Bibles to James, or turn your Bibles over to James chapter 2, please. I want to read to you verses 1 through 9. So if you have your Bibles, 
or you've got your phone, click over to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. James, who we just read about here, he is the, again, the half-brother, the step-brother of Jesus, wrote the letter of James. And he says this in chapter 2, beginning verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. In other words, don't think that God just loves you more than everyone else. Okay? For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothing, and you say to him, here, sit in this good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my foot still. Have you not shown partiality amongst yourselves and become judges with evil hearts? Here's the picture. Somebody comes in, they roll up in a, I don't know, a Rolls Royce or something else like that, and they have an Armani suit and, you know, whatever it is that's fancy, they, they display their wealth. Are you going to treat that person differently because they have wealth? Especially when following right behind is somebody, maybe it's a homeless person. And yes, maybe they still smell because they haven't bathed in months. And their to clothes are torn. They're missing teeth and their hair is a mess. And we say to them, oh, well, you, you can sit over here in the back. But the wealthy person will put up in front. I haven't confirmed this, but I've heard there's a church in this local area that if you tithe over a certain amount, you get the seats in front. But if you don't tithe over a certain amount, you get those back seats. If you've ever, if you're familiar with the American history, you remember Paul Revere's ride, you know, one if the light, the lance, one if by day, two if by sea, was the North Church in Boston. Did you understand that at that time, people bid for seats, and that if you were poor, you got to sit in the very back? Do you understand that um, the Salvation Army started by a man who wanted to reach out to coal miners, who the churches of that day said, we don't want anything to do with you. You guys are too dirty, you're too poor. And he wanted to reach out to them with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so that's the heart that we need to have. And that's what James is telling us. Continuing on here in James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not shown the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom with which he has promised those who love him. I can tell you this from personal experience. Those who are poor oftentimes have much greater faith than any of us here in America. I've been to places where I might know more Bible than they know, but they know more faith than I do. This afternoon, my choices of eating are really whatever I desire. In many other parts of the world, on Sundays they don't eat because they don't have enough food. Because they didn't work that day. Do you understand? In some places of the world, they choose not to work on Sundays so that they can gather with the saints and they fully know that means I don't have any food today. But I'd rather gather with the saints than have a belly full of food. Because many people work day to day for the food that evening. 
Verse 6, but you've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Who's more likely to sue you? The poor person who has nothing or the rich man who's afraid that maybe you got an extra chicken nugget in your meal? The rich man, he has access to the courts. He's one to, to frivolously sue. They do not blaspheme the noble name by which he was called. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. We're inviting you to join us to go down to Mexico. They're, they have less stuff than we have in Mexico. The kids at this shelter this orphanage, have less than us. They don't have parents involved in their lives. But as Merv has already shared with us, he's seen kids grow from little up into college. And he's seen how the Lord works in their lives. And that's a tremendous thing. God wants to work in their lives. God wants to work in the life of a homeless person or somebody in Haiti or somebody in India or somebody in China. And shame on us when we think of somebody because they don't travel in our circles that somehow they're lesser of a person. Back in Galatians chapter 2, he says, I went to them. Though they seemed to be something, it made no difference to me because God doesn't show personal favoritism. To those who seem to be something, again, referring to the pillars, that would be James, John, and Peter, they added nothing to me. Now, this is not Paul being self-righteous. He's just saying, look, they didn't add to the gospel story. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, which would be Gentiles, non-Jews, had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised had been committed to Peter. The same gospel, there's not two different gospels. There's not a gospel for Jews and a gospel for non-Jews. Paul was ministering primarily to the non-Jews. Peter was ministering primarily to the Jews, but it's the same gospel message. God may call somebody to minister to a particular people group. That doesn't mean that other people aren't important. If God's called you to minister to those that speak Spanish, there's nothing wrong with that, and it's, they aren't lesser or more important than somebody who doesn't speak Spanish. Somebody who grew up Catholic is not more or less important than somebody else. Somebody that grew up Baptist is not more or less important. And that's what he's saying. Look, it doesn't matter. What does matter is it always comes down to your personal relationship between you and Jesus. That's what matters. Does your family background give you advantages or could it be detrimental? Sure. If you live in one part of the world versus another part, do you have different advantages? Certainly. But it always boils down to, do you know Jesus? If you grew up in a Bible-teaching church, praise the Lord, and that's a good thing. If you never stepped foot into church all of your childhood, God still loves you. That's why we as a church... In the summertime, we have vacation Bible school to teach the children. And we want kids from outside the church to come. Hopefully, when we go down to Mexico, we'll be able to do a vacation Bible school for them as well, where we can teach the Bible to them at their level. Right now in the back, 
There are those who are ministering to the children. They're ministering to them the love of Jesus Christ at a level that they can understand. For example, if in children's ministry you say, well, Jesus is the propitiation and he's my redeemer and he's, we're washed in the blood of the lamb, that's just going to sail right over their heads, aren't, isn't it? So you need to break it down to their level. I don't mean to lower the gospel, but use words that they understand, things that they can comprehend. And so that's what it's about. It's about, have you come to Jesus? You see, the Judaizers, these were people that were trying to influence the church and trying to make people be Jews on top of being Christians. These would be non-Jews, Gentiles, who didn't grow up in the Jewish faith and saying to them, well, you came to faith in Christ, but now you've got to add on all of this religious rituals. And for a Jewish person, they're significant. The day of Passover or the time of Passover. It's great for us as Christians who don't grow up Jewish to have an understanding of that, but you're not required to partake in the, participate in Passover or the Day of Atonement, Festival of Booths. You're not required to follow the, the law as far as dietary laws of what you can and can't eat, the kosher law. Nothing wrong with eating kosher, but it doesn't make you more spiritual if you do eat kosher or less spiritual if you don't. But if you grew up Jewish, you were taught the only way that you can get to heaven is by following all of God's rules. Here's the problem. <laughs> Nobody, whether Jew or non-Jew, can follow all of God's rules. So it becomes a problem. But these Judaizers had hoped to get a hold of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem and to disagree with Paul. And Paul says, look, I'm not impressed by who's in front. I want to follow Jesus. And that's what it's about. You see, Paul said, I got the gospel message from God himself. I didn't get it from Peter and Paul. It's not a franchise. It's not like McDonald's where you buy a franchise and then you become a McDonald's person or Chick-fil-A or anything else like that. It's not that. It's about a relationship with a living God. Continuing on here. So the gospel message in verse 7 goes both to the uncircumcised and the circumcised. Verse 8, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, that would be the Jews, also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. All Paul is saying is, look, God has primarily made my ministry to non-Jews. And Peter's ministry is primarily to Jews. It doesn't mean that we're fighting against each other. We're just ministering to two people groups. And that's just fine. There is no distinction. There's no partiality. There's no drawing of lines because of one religious background or another. Now, if you happen to grow up Catholic, it's interesting that according to Catholic theology, the current pope is a direct descendant or direct authority from Peter. But Peter's ministry was primarily to Jews. The Catholic Church, unfortunately, doesn't have a good history of dealing with Jews. Just a little bit of a quandary there if you happen to have grown up in that background or understanding that. You see, it's fine for God's people to recognize that God uses different people in different areas, in different areas of ministries. Now, understand this. Peter did minister to non-Jews. We find 
in Acts chapter 10 that he ministered to Cornelius, not a Jewish man. He ministered to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, not Jews or not true blood Jews. And so Peter ministered to non-Jews, but most of his ministry was to Jews. Paul, likewise, ministered primarily to non-Jews, but every time he went to a new city, he sought out who? Jews. He went to the synagogue or to a place where Jews would gather, and that's where he started his ministry. Usually what happened? Some Jews became Christians, other Jews got upset with them, and then Paul turned and ministered to the non-Jews. So Paul's ministry was primarily to the non-Jews, but it doesn't mean he had an animosity towards Jews. He wanted to share the gospel with them. So there's a difference there. So it's okay, for example, for somebody to say, I feel called to Mexico. Wonderful. It doesn't mean that you can't share the gospel with somebody who doesn't speak Spanish, though. But if God's called you and blessed you in that arena, then go for it. And somebody else says, well, I, I, God's called me to, I don't know, Switzerland. Wonderful. Doesn't mean that you can't minister to a Hispanic person, even if you're in Switzerland, right? Or vice versa. It's about the gospel. But does the Lord at times gift and anoint us to share with specific people groups? Absolutely. And that's all that Peter and Paul are talking about. Verse 9, for when James and Caiaphas, that it would be Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So the leaders of the day, the Jewish church, when they heard all that God was doing through Paul, said, praise the Lord, brother, keep on going. And that ought to be our attitude. So there's a church down the street and God's working. Our attitude ought to be praise the Lord. Go for it. May God be glorified. Okay? That we should, that is, go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And then verse 10. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing that we were eager to do. Now, the poor probably most likely meant the poor in Jerusalem. You see, because of a persecution that had risen and because of the, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there was significant difficulties in and around Jerusalem. And if you will notice that Paul in his missionary journeys would go around gathering up a collection to be sent back to Jerusalem. You see, Paul still loved his brethren. He wanted to minister to them in practical ways. And so although he was ministering to non-Jews, Gentiles, he was practically sending money back to Jerusalem to minister to Jews. You see, in our lives, there should not be a distinction. We're not to hold, well, you're not part of my club. If there's a need we ought, and we're able to meet that need, we ought to meet that need. What we see right here is a move from the theoretical or the theological to the practical. Helping the poor. That's something that you and I as Christians are called to do. Throughout human history, who are the ones that started hospitals? Christians. Who are the ones that started orphanages? Christians. Where did the Salvation Army come from? To share the love of Christ with others that were poor and had difficulty. That's where that came from. 
Now today, the government has sort of taken over many of those roles and responsibilities. But it will always been the heart of God, God moving on God's people to care for those that don't have stuff that you might have. So the theological moves to the practical. These things, correct doctrine or correctly understanding what God's word says, never substitutes our Christian duty. Did you get that? Having correct doctrine, having good Bible knowledge is not a substitute for living your life out amongst others. Concerning the need for the poor, Paul did exactly those things. He brought gifts, financial gifts, to Jerusalem through his many missionary journeys. Matter of fact, we have writings in Corinthians about take up the offering before I get there. That way when I come, we don't have to mess with the offering and we will send it in people's hands that we trust back to Jerusalem. And that's what we're called to do. You and I are called to minister to others. We are not to look down at somebody because they don't speak our language or they live in a different part of the world or they have a different culture than us. We're to see them as people who need Jesus Christ. And when you run across somebody who has a different background than you but loves Jesus, we ought to rejoice at that. It ought to be it cause our hearts to leap. Maybe they have a different culture. They have a different ways of doing things. They eat different things. But we should never despise somebody because of their culture. The question always needs to be, do you know Jesus Christ? And if you do, praise the Lord and let's rejoice together. If you don't, let me share with you about Jesus Christ. So come next week. Hang out after church. Why? Because you get to hear about an opportunity to go down to Mexico personal. Today after church, if you want to, you can go over to El Pollo Loco and enjoy a fabulous, crazy chicken lunch. And then know that some of your proceeds are helping those that desire to go to Haiti to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. As a church, we support a number of different missionaries, and I want to remind you of them. For example, Dave and Lily in Romania, who are ministering primarily to the disenfranchised of Romania, to orphans who have been abandoned by their own people, to gypsies, which are a sub, like a third-class citizenship in Romania, and they're ministering specifically to them. Would you pray for them? Paul and Donna Cox are ministering in Africa and Kenya to raise up pastors to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you pray for them? We have Holly and Chewy even this weekend that uh, in Nuevo Laredo sharing with kids there. Day of the Child, they're using it as an opportunity to give gifts to the children and introduce them to the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. Would you pray for them? We support the Pregnancy Resource Center. Oh, that woman, she's pregnant. She shouldn't have gotten pregnant. Yeah, okay, she shouldn't have gotten pregnant, but she's pregnant. Are we going to minister to her? Are we going to tell her what the rest of the world says or just get rid of it? No, that's a precious life that's loved by Christ. But she needs help, practical things, and that's what the Pregnancy Resource Center does. And if you want to join and support them to stand up for life by participating in the walk or giving to their ministry, that's a wonderful opportunity that they can come alongside and share the gospel with women and then also meet some of their practical needs. Those are things that here right through this church that we're doing, that you can continue. Then we have, of course, ministry in India. We have John Vargas, 
and Pastor Gali and the group of pastors there that are ministering in India in the native language to people that they might come to know their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Murph shared with us this morning about an orphanage, a, a shelter in Mexico just across the border from Brownsville. You have the opportunity to pray for them. I urge you, if nothing else, to pray for them. The opportunity to go, maybe financially support it, whatever it might be. But you have the opportunity to minister. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ this morning? If the answer is yes, then we can't ignore the needs of people around us. We can't as a Bible-believing Christian. If you say that you're a Christian, but you feel no conviction to help anybody else around you physically or practically, then I have to question your Christianity. Jesus cared for those that were weak, who were hungry, who were sick, as much as he cared about their spiritual well-being. And so it's my desire that we, and at whatever mechanism that the Lord uses us as a church, that we would minister both to the practical needs as well as the spiritual needs. That we do them side by side. That we'd give somebody a meal and share the gospel with them. That we'd help somebody who needs help and also share the gospel with them. That's my heart's desire.